You're like, I looked at these houses around here, Alex. Like, I am not rich. If that's what rich is, right? You're like, have you seen what I live in? I live in a little apartment. Uh, Darby and I live in a little twin. Maybe you guys live in a little house and you think, I am not rich. What do you think the average salary is for the world? Average salary. Darby knows because I already told her. And just guess. In American dollars, how much do you think the average person makes in a year? 60,000, 60, okay? 30. 30,000. Probably about 7,000. If you talk more around. Yep, yep. Mark's a lot closer, but he's still high. The average salary for the world is $2,100 for the year. Now think about that for a minute. That means all of us sitting in this room are rich. Because I'm betting right now you made a lot more than $2,100 for the year. About 3.4 billion people, that's nearly 50% of the world's population, lives on less than $5 a week. That's insane. If you drove here today, you're in the top 10% of the wealthiest people on the planet. If you have a place to go back and live that has electricity, you're in the top 10% of wealth for the world. Are we rich? Yes. I mean, when people ask me, are you rich? I'm like, no, 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 I'm not a mainliner. Like, I'm more Delco than I am, you know, uh, mainline. Um, but according to Jesus, I'm afraid I might be rich. According to these statistics, it looks like we're rich. In Matthew 19, 23, Jesus says, to his disciples, his followers, to those who want to live and love like him. He says, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And usually I read that, and I'm like, that applies to somebody else. Somebody who went to Harvard or Princeton, who's bringing in big bucks, who's driving the Audi SUV. And uh, that doesn't apply to me in my Toyota Highlander that somebody gave me, right? Thank you, Mom and Dad, for giving me a uh, Toyota <laughs> Highlander. Um, but if I just look at the statistics, when Jesus says it's hard for the rich to live in the kingdom of heaven, he's talking to me and he's talking to you. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been exploring the Sermon on the Mount, what it looks like to live with Jesus as king of our life. And Jesus warns that it's, it's rare and it's hard for the rich to really live in his kingdom with him as your king. And I usually read this verse and assume it's about somebody else, but by all definitions of the word and by all definitions of the world, we are rich. So his warning applies to us. So today, we're going to talk about what Jesus said about money. Now, it's going to be hard for us to hear. It was hard for me to study and prepare and pray over and write because we're rich. It's going to be hard to hear these things. It's going to be hard to accept these things. But I think that Jesus didn't say these things to make us guilty, but to give us a vision of a better future, a better way of living life. But now, before we get into what he talks about money, let's talk about self-denial. I mean, it's going to be all exciting, happy things today, right? Self-denial, Jesus is teaching on money. If you want to get up and leave, I will not be offended. Like, I don't even want to present this. Like, it's just, it's terrible. 
Um, but if we're going to take seriously what Jesus said about wealth, we need to first look at what he said about self-denial. And we're going to pick up where we left off in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. It says, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this is the third of three spiritual principles that Jesus has talked about in Matthew chapter 6. Three spiritual practices that people in his day did, and he said most of the time they did it for the wrong reason. Do you remember the first one? Giving to the poor. Praying was number two, but good job, thank you. Giving to the poor was the first one, and then praying, and now fasting. And he said people were doing this to show off and to make people think they were spiritual. And uh, he said that's not the purpose of these spiritual practices. Now notice first that Jesus doesn't say, if you fast. He just assumes that his followers will be fasting. He assumes that students of how he lived and loved will model how he fasted from food. A good Jew in Jesus' day would fast one day a week from sunup to sundown. And they did this for very practical reasons. They would do this not only to focus on prayer and uh, reconnecting with God, but they would take all the money that they saved from eating that day and they would give it to the poor. And so it was a way to create excess so that they could give. And so first century Jews, a good Jew, would take a day, and the family would fast together that day, and they would take the money they would have spent, whatever you spend in a day on food, $5, $30, whatever, and they would give that to someone who was hungry. They would go without food for one day so that on that day, those who went without food the other days could eat. If we're honest, we rarely fast in our churches. Like, this isn't a real popular thing. I remember in Tennessee, where I was pastoring, I talked about fasting one time. This girl came up to me afterwards. She was like, you don't understand. I love food. I'm not like other people. I really love it. I cannot go without food. Food is so good. I'm like, food's good for everybody. Like, I get it. Like, I love food. But often, we're more interested in what Jesus can give us than we are in what Jesus, what we can give up for him. Fasting doesn't force God's hand. Sometimes you hear this like, man, you really want it? Fast. It forces God to give you what you want. Like, you know, if you pray, but if you pray and fast, God's got to do it. He'll just have to do it then, you know? That's not what fasting is about. It's not a magic spiritual move to get him to give you what you pray for. We are giving something up to spiritually grow, not to get. It is choosing to go without something you need, food, something good, something that's been given to you by God, to remind yourself of what you need even more than food and breath, God himself. Fasting is, in the words of Dallas Willard, feasting on God, reminding yourself how good and sweet God is. It restructures our priorities and allows us to focus on what is most important in our life. I think fasting also produces thankfulness. Show me someone who's constantly complaining, and I will assure you they do not practice Diligent, rhythmic fasting in their schedule and in their life. The spiritual discipline of fasting just removes complaining out of your life. It's like all of a sudden you give up something good and you realize everything that you already have. Fasting makes us thankful for what we have, our daily bread. And sometimes if I just go a day without eating, I am so thankful that next day when I put food in my mouth. 
I'm like, thank you so much, God. Thank you for this. And most of the time, I take it for granted. It makes us stop and appreciate all the good we already have. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I hate fasting. I love eating. I love just taking a block of cheese out of the fridge and taking a big bite out of it. Much to my wife's disgust, you know? Like, I just love eating. I snack all the time. Darby sometimes asks me, are you hungry? The answer is always the same. I'm always hungry. Like, there's never a moment when I'm not hungry. Like, we just eat a meal and I'm like, I could eat again. You know, like, I could just eat all the time. But fasting spiritually refocuses me. It spiritually renews me. My goal, and I'm going to tell you guys this so you can help with me accountable. What I want to do is I want to fast one day a week from sunup to sundown. And eat a dinner that evening, but skip breakfast and lunch. No snacks in between. Um, when I do that, I'm not doing that every week, by the way. But I want that's where I want to get to. When I do that, it really refocuses me, helps to reprioritize what I'm about and what I'm doing. It just it brings spiritual clarity into my life. Becoming a disciple means that we deny ourselves the throne and we abdicate the role of our life to Jesus. I think a lot of times I just want to add Jesus onto my role and reign. I want to do what I want to do, but add a little Jesus in. But I need a full-blown coup in my life. I need him to take over, and that means I need to accept what he taught about self-denial and fasting. Remember that iconic scene in Parks and Rec? Did anybody a Parks and Rec fan? Hmm. A few, maybe? Okay. I love Parks and Rec. Darby and I just rewatch it over and over again. There's these two characters, Donna and Tom, and they're like, are you down? What you need is a day of pampering and self-indulgence and purposes, and they call it treat yourself. And they'll like randomly come out like a character will be down and they'll be like, you need to treat yourself. And they'll go to the spa, buy some things, and they just go out and they spend a bunch of money, and they just, they're like, it's treat yourself day. Like, give yourself what you want. Jesus says the secret to happiness is the exact opposite of what Donna and Tom say. Deny yourself. Jesus might say something. Deny yourself what you want. The blessed life, the best life, the life that you and I want, the pinnacle of human flourishing does not come from getting everything that you want. Does not come from indulgence and excess, but from sacrifice and self-denial. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said this, If you want to become a disciple, a student of how I live in love, you must deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow me. Jesus isn't really selling us on this, right? Like, what are you doing, Jesus? Like, where's the, you know, the sales pitch? He's like, the best life is going to come through sacrifice and self-denial, not through indulgence and excess. Um, G.K. Chesterton said, meaninglessness does not come from an excess of pain, but from an excess of pleasure. And I think our Western culture is so rich, and we're so pleasure-focused, we've reached the point where we're like, this is all meaningless. We're like, what does it all matter? We have so much that nothing matters to us, and we think, well, maybe if I get more, it'll start to matter. So, let's get to the hard stuff now. <laughs> and you're like, what? We already been through the hard stuff. No, it gets worse. Um, but I have to believe that Jesus knows what's best for me, that Jesus wasn't crazy, that Jesus actually wants to help us. It's hard to believe that fasting was the easy part of this passage, the easy part of this message. I joked with Al, I was like, you want to fill in this morning and you want to preach this? Because I don't, I don't want to preach this. Um, only when we learn to deny ourselves can we be prepared to take seriously what he's about to say about money 
So let's continue in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth. The word can also be possessions on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or your translation might say God and men. So, I'm just going to get it out of the way right up front here. I hate money. I hate talking about it. Sometimes Darby, Darby does all our finances, and I'm so grateful for that. She does a great job. Um, I have no problem with the fact that Darby controls all the money in our relationship because then I don't have to think about numbers or money. I just hate numbers. I hate money. I hate talking about it. Sometimes she'll come to me. She's like, we have a little extra money this month. I'm like, I don't want to hear about it. Like, she's like, we could do something with it. I'm like, I don't want to hear about it. I hate money. Just whatever you want to do with it is fine. Uh, if this is your first Sunday at Horizon, your first Sunday watching online, we're not one of those churches that just talk about money all the time. I've been in some of those, and they're just constantly like, give me more money. It's all about money, and uh, that's not who we are. I'm not trying to guilt you into giving more. If I had my way, I'd just avoid this passage, and I'd talk about something else. Um, but we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus talks about money. And I can't avoid what he said, because what I think he's saying is for our good and not for our harm. He thinks it's important for people trying to become a student to understand this. Now, in seminary, they told me, they told me a tip. They said, never talk about money, never talk about politics. The only problem with that is Jesus talked about money. And so I have to talk about it sometimes because Jesus talked about it. I don't like to talk about it, but Jesus talked about it a lot. In fact, uh, depending on how you count this up, some scholars say Jesus talked more about money than about heaven and hell combined. That's very important to him. Um, Timothy Keller, a pastor and author in New York City, he joked, if we talked as much about money as pastors as Jesus did, none of us would have churches. Everybody would have run us out, right? So, I'm not going to talk about it all the time. It rarely ever comes up, but we need to take seriously what Jesus said. And let me just say, I'm so grateful for the generosity of those who give to the church. I'm so grateful to be surrounded by such generous and kind people who have kept this church going throughout quarantine. This is not me in any way being like, hey, I really need you to give more and poking you with a stick to, you know, try to get you to put more in. That's not what this is about. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. So I have to talk about it. Okay. Everybody good? You still with me? Nobody's run out streaming. Okay. I'm probably more uncomfortable about talking about this than you are actually hearing it. But Jesus made it clear here in this passage, if we want to enjoy the benefits of his kingdom, we need to submit every area of our lives to his role. Next week, we're going to talk about what Jesus said about anxiety. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of anxiety and I want to get rid of it. And Jesus said that if you want to enjoy things like not being anxious, then you better accept my behaviors for the rest of your life. See, we don't get the benefits of the kingdom while rejecting the principles of the kingdom. They go hand in hand. And so when Jesus is telling us this, he's telling us this because the full pinnacle of human flourishing, living in the kingdom as him, as our king, means that we give every area of our life over to him. One seminary professor told me the last areas of someone's life 
that they submit to the kingdom of God, that they submit to King Jesus, is their sex lives and their wallets. Jesus doesn't mince words here. And we're rich, remember? Remember in the beginning when it made us all uncomfortable by reminding us we're in the top 10% of the world? We're not going to like what Jesus says because we're rich. And he said, the rich don't like what I have to say about money. So be prepared to feel uncomfortable. And it's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's okay to push back and say, oh, Jesus, is this really true? And wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. I'd rather you do that than ignore it. So Jesus doesn't mince words. He's offering an abundant life, but it looks very different than the life our culture thinks is abundant. The, if you've ever seen one of these shows, and it's like this super wealthy, super rich person, this famous person, and they're miserable people. They have so much. And yet in our minds, we think, if I just had another 10000 my life would be really good. If I had another 10000 I could prevent this. If I had another 10000 I wouldn't have to worry about that. And what I find is, what our culture thinks will bring us abundance and joy never does. So... Before we jump into this, let's talk about this weird middle section. Did you catch this? Jesus is like, possessions. Then he's talking about money. And in the middle, he's like, eyes. Let's talk about eyes. And you're like, what are you doing, Jesus? Did you guys see it? It's really weird. He goes, um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye. It's the lamp of the body. You're like, what does this have to do with eyes? Did he get distracted, you know, with somebody rubbing their eyes and he's like, loses his train of thought? No. We're, we miss a little bit because this was... There, scholars believe there was this first century saying that when people were generous, they had a good eye. And when people were greedy, they had a bad eye. Bad-eyed people only saw what they could get. Good-eyed people only saw what they could give. It was a way of looking at the world. And so if you were a generous person, they were like, he has a good eye. He sees people's needs and how he can help. Well, a bad-eyed person only sees people's stuff and what they can and so Jesus is playing off of that first century, um, that first century saying here, and he is, um, oh, sorry, uh, the, he is essentially saying the sin of greed will spiritually blind us. That's what he's warning us about. If you have good eyesight, your eyes will take in light, you will see a clear image. If you get a clear, you'll have a clear picture. If you have bad eyes, you won't know what's going on. When I take off these glasses, I'm really defenseless. Like, if, you, if I took them off and you came up to attack me, I'd be like, there's some blur moving towards me. I don't know what it is. And I'd just stand there as you punch me. But with my glasses on, I would try to move out of the way and I would still get punched because my reflexes are bad, right? But I would at least see it coming. He's saying, if we're greedy, if we're rich, it's going to spiritually blind you and you won't even... So here's what Jesus is warning us. We're going to hear this passage and think, that doesn't apply to me. That applies to somebody else. Maybe the person across the room. Maybe the person up front. Maybe the person out here. Maybe the person on that one street over here, you know. Maybe over there in Linwood, but, you know, not over here. Or, uh, maybe over there in Gladwin where, the, you know, the sports players live. But not me. This does not apply to me. And we're going to think of all these reasons why this passage doesn't apply to us. And he says, that's because you have bad eyes. Because you're greedy. Because you're rich. And it will spiritually blind you. And so writing this and preparing this, I just stop and say, okay, this isn't for somebody else. This is for me. I can't just assume this is about somebody else. This is about me. A lot of us are oblivious to the effect that money and possessions and greed has had in our lives. 
We don't think we're greedy because greed has blinded us. Jesus says that's what it does. It spiritually blinds you and thinks, makes you think you don't have a problem. If you think these verses aren't for me, Jesus would counter that is exactly what a greedy person would think. So let's assume that we all have a problem, that this is a place where we can all grow, and let's listen to what King Jesus says here. Let's see what he's teaching about living the pinnacle of human flourishing, the abundant, full, blessed life. Jesus starts by asking a probing question. What are you investing in? What are you investing in? Things that can be lost when the stock market crashes, when there is a fire, when someone breaks into your home or steals your identity, or are you investing in spiritual non-perishable? Now, the term in heaven, he says, are you investing in earth or in heaven? A lot of us immediately think, okay, he means afterlife. That's not how Matthew uses the term heaven throughout his gospel, his biography of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. The Jewish people were really hesitant to even say the word God because they were afraid of using his name wrong. They certainly wouldn't say Yahweh, the name of God given in the Old Testament. And so sometimes to avoid even saying Yahweh, they wouldn't even say God. And they would say something like this, heaven. Or the kingdom of heaven. That's where God was and what God wanted. And it was like a fill-in for the place where God got what he wanted. So when he's talking about heaven, he's less talking about the afterlife. They believed in an afterlife. But they usually refer to it like this. The age to come. The resurrection. They didn't talk about it as heaven. So he's not saying we can invest in things now or we can invest in things in the next life. He's saying we can invest in things that are are uh, physical, things that could be lost, or we could invest in kingdom things, things that will never be lost. Jesus almost always used the word heaven in Matthew as a synonym for the kingdom, where he rules and reigns. Are you building your kingdom, he's saying, which can be burned down, which can be stolen, which can be gnawed by rats and thieves, or are you building my kingdom? Our kingdom is never going to last. At best, it'll last until you die. At worst, it'll last until the economy crashes. Um, his kingdom will never end. And so he's saying, are you investing your resources? Are you investing your life? Are you investing everything you have in your kingdom? Building up your reputation, your possessions, your security, or in mine? Or in other words, what he's saying is how we spend our money reveals our true priorities. It reveals what we think we really need to bring us the pinnacle of human flourishing we all crave. Do we have a house full of stuff, a closet full of stuff, a garage full of stuff, a bank full of stuff? I built his kingdom. Now, one of the spiritual disciplines that Jesus taught his followers, we talked about this last year as we did a whole series on spiritual discipline. How do we build our spiritual muscles to follow in the footsteps of Jesus by practicing the same spiritual disciplines that he did? Um, I'd love to talk to you more about that, but for sake of time, Let's just talk about this one that I think ties in here, practicing the spiritual practice of simplicity. Now, there was a Psychology Today article, and I found it quite fascinating. They compared, like, decision-making and the effect decision-making has on our minds and our psyches and our bodies. Um, can you guess how many decisions they think a modern person makes from the time they wake up to the time they go to sleep in one day? Any guesses? How many decisions do you think? Uh, Hundreds, thousands? They 
suggested somewhere between 30 and 35,000 decisions. They said everything between what app you click on your phone versus what you click like on to how long you hold something. There's over 35,000 decisions a day as modern people. And they contrast this with, if you go back 100 years ago, people made maybe 100 decisions in a day. And they said part of the reason that our culture and our society today feels so stressed and anxious, why we can't enjoy life more is we have so many decisions, we have decision fatigue. There's too much to choose. We wanted a world that revolved around us where we could always have our way and pick all our options, and now there's too many options and it's overwhelming and it's destroying us. They suggested that if we had less decisions, like people 100 years ago, those people were less anxious and enjoyed life more even though their life was unbelievably harder than our lives today. We have a thousand movie options. Have you ever done this? You're like, let's watch a movie. Which one? Well, we've got a hundred Blu-rays here. Like, I don't know. We turn on Netflix, there's 10,000 options here. You know, you turn on cable, you're like, channel, channel, channel. What is that? We have so many options, we don't know what to choose. We have a thousand video game choices, a thousand TikTok videos to watch, you know, a thousand entertainment options, a thousand different apps to download and choose between, and it's too much. Like it's too much for us, and we're overwhelmed. And Jesus presents a different way of living, simplicity. He says, how do you simplify things? Having more has made us enjoy less. That's what psychology today says, and I think Jesus would say, exactly. The more you have, the less content you are with what you have, because you think one more thing, that'll change things. Having less on your schedule, less in your closet, less on your shelves actually makes you enjoy and be thankful for what you have more. The more we have, the more ungrateful we become. At least I do. It seems like the more I get, the more I want. Greed actually blinds us and keeps us from enjoying what we already have by promising contentment if we just get one more thing that's out of reach. If I just had that, then it'd be content. And then once we get that, we're like, ah, oh, if I just did that, then it'd be content. Darby and I were talking, I was like, I'll buy one more video game, and then I'll be happy, you know? Like, I'll never need another video game. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm done with that one. I need another one. I'll buy one more board game. And I'm like, oh, that board game was really fun, but I need the expansion now. I gotta get the expansion to that board game. Then I'll be happy. And it goes on and on, and I enjoy what I have less and less as I have more. Jesus' answer and cure for greed is quite simple. Radical generosity. Radical generosity. He says, if you give away, you get to enjoy what you have. So the question that gets asked a lot is, how much should I give away? Now, many Christians throughout the 2,000 years of the church try to give 10% of their income away. You see in the Old Testament, all the followers of Jesus, the first followers of Jesus, were Jews, they were commanded in the Old Testament to give 10% uh, to God through the temple, and uh, they would give God the first 10%, not what was left over after bills, they're like, eh, I only got 8%, they would give God the first 10%, they called it the first fruits, God got the best and the, the first. Um, let's be honest, for some of us, giving 10% would destroy you. You wouldn't be able to eat, like, you'd be broke. Um, for some of you, giving 10% won't make a dent in how you enjoy your life and the lifestyle you practice. C.S. Lewis said, until our giving hinders our entertainment, we've not really given anything. 
Mm. Boy, that is me, because I still buy a lot of board games. I tried, Darby and I have set some standards for Lifeway. We want to give 10% to Horizon, and then we want to give some to support missionaries that we know around the world and some other causes that we believe in. And we're trying to be generous people. We have a long way to go. But I think, you know what? I still get to do everything I want. It hasn't impacted my entertainment. I still have all these streaming apps, and I still buy everything that I want. Someone, uh, my birthday is coming up soon, and so uh, my family was asking me, what do you want? I was like, I have everything I want. Like, there's literally nothing I want, and if I want it, Amazon gets it to me in one day. <laughs> I'm like, that may not be a healthy place to be. I most often give out of my excess, but I rarely lower my standard of living in order to create excess in order to give more. That's just my confession to you. Like, if I have extra, sure, I'll be generous with it. But rarely do I say, oh, I'm going to go without this thing that I really want in order to have more to give. But the early church, the early church, they did not put set this standard of giving 10%. I've seen some churches, uh, in fact, I had a, a pastor, a uh, local pastor, tell me when I was starting this church, he's like, if you don't demand 10% from your people, they will not be blessed by God. That's just a lie. Like, God reigns on the evil and the good. He brings the sun out on the evil and the good. God's not going to withhold good for you because you withheld some of the money that uh, rightfully belongs to him. That's not that's not how God works, and I'm never going to preach that. That's never going to be our standard here. Um, but the early church also saw that Jesus was asking for a lot more than 10%. And you see this in the way Apostle, the Apostle Paul talks about it. Um, they realized that what Jesus was suggesting went way beyond their Jewish roots of good Jews give 10% of their income. They believed that to model the radical generosity of Jesus himself, who gave 100% on the cross for us, that they should give 100% to their fellow believer if they were in need, 100% to kingdom causes. They should give everything that they possibly could towards the kingdom advance of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, we see what Paul says. Paul says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one of you must give as you decide in your heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word translated cheerful in the Greek here is hilarion, or hilaros, um, two forms of the same word. So what does that sound like to us? Hilarious. It's like you're so cheerful about it, you're laughing about it, but it also has this idea of, it's so crazy what you give, people would laugh at that. Like, it would be like, hey, Darby, what kind of tip do you want to give this waiter? And she's like, 3,000%. And I'd be like, that's crazy, right? You know, and he's, that's the word he's using here. Like, it's crazy hilarious how much you give. The early church fathers saw everything they had as belonging to their king. So giving to his kingdom a ridiculous amount didn't matter because it was already his. He's like, it's already all his. I don't care what we give. You know, like, he owns it all. If somebody needs something, well, it's not mine anyway. Say, Jesus, Jesus wants you to have it. As a follower of Jesus... If I'm to take this teaching seriously, and believe me, I'm struggling to, that means I have nothing. Everything I have is his, loaned to me for his kingdom and for his kingdom purposes. Not for my comfort, not for my security, for his kingdom. I don't need to possess anything to be happy because I truly possess nothing. He possesses everything. All I need is 
Mark Batterson is a church planner pastor in Washington, D.C. I really like him. Uh, he's inspired me a lot. I like a lot of his books. Um, he has this great goal. He's not there, but he's talked about this publicly, and he has people who hold him accountable. He's trying every year to give more and more of his income because his goal is he wants to live on 10% and tithe 90% of his income. That's not the way I think. I'm like, okay, I'm giving 10%. I'm meeting the standard. Okay, good. You know, people think that's good. That's more than most people give. And, uh, you know, I'm a leader, so people expect that of me. So I got to do that. And now I, as we increase in the money that we make through our jobs and, you know, they're offering me a raise at work and Darby might be up for a raise. And I'm like, good, now we can get more stuff. I can have a little bit nicer clothes. We can get a little bit nicer stuff. Most of us find out how we can get more instead of finding out how we can give more. Most of us don't care about investing in kingdom causes. I want to invest in comfort causes. I want to invest in security causes. I want to invest in things that make me feel good and look good and feel safe. We look to money to give us significance and control. Instead of trusting Jesus, we hope in what money can provide which leads us to our next question. This was the big question Jesus asked, right? Uh, it's kind of the unstated question in the middle of this. What do you treasure? Remember Gollum in Lord of the Rings? Hmm. Lord of the Rings teaches so much good theology, by the way. Um, Gollum, he treasured the ring. Gollum hmm. is precious, right? Uh, he jumped into a volcano at the end of the movie. Spoilers if you haven't seen this like 15-year-old movie, right? Uh, he jumped into a volcano at the end just to be near it again for a few seconds. Even if it meant death. Having that for a few seconds was what he needed to have meaning, to have value. What we, what we treasure is what we call right. It's what makes the pain and difficulty of life worth it. We think if we have that, everything's worth it. It's what we're willing to sacrifice for, what we're willing to jump into a volcano for. The thing we think, without this, life isn't even worth living, but if I could have this for one second, it makes everything worth it. I think how we spend our money reveals what we treasure. How we spend our money often reveals idolatry. The word here used at the end when Jesus says, in some of your translations, you can either serve God or money. Some translations say mammon. Um, some scholars believe that mammon is actually some type of demonic, dark power, like a, a false god. If so, it's the only god besides Bezizabub, um, I butchered that name, that Jesus actually mentions as like a true dark spiritual power that he's wrestling against. I think how we spend our money often, real, often reveals idolatry. Idols, I don't think, are what we burn candles and incense to. They're what we look to in order to provide us emotional stability and meaning and safety from our fear. Mm -hmm. Jesus warns us here. He says, what you treasure, there your heart will be. Jesus warns us that our emotions will always follow what we treasure. So if you treasure the wrong thing, you're going to be heartbroken. Choose your treasure very, very carefully because it's going to control how you feel. Some of us, maybe watching, maybe here, sometimes myself, we're an emotional wreck because we've treasured the wrong things that day, that week, that month, that year, that lifetime. He makes this bold statement here at the end, right? He says, you cannot serve God or money. Two binary options, like Jesus 
get hit, right? It's not just binary, right? We have more options than that. Jesus, like, it's either God or money. It's not God and money. He's very black and white about this. He says it's either God or money. You can either use your money to serve God or you serve your money. See, generosity is not just a good spiritual practice. It's not just something like, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, so I've got to do this. Jesus isn't just trying to guilt you into giving more to the church or some kingdom cause or some good, noble um, nonprofit. Generosity is the only way to escape a cruel and vicious master called want. We live in America where we always want more. We always need more. There's a video of me as a little kid. I'm opening presents on Christmas, and everything I open, I rip open and I say, I needed that! And then I throw it to the side, and I open the next thing, and I rip it open, and I go, I needed that! And I throw it to the side, and I open the next one, and I rip it open, and I go, I needed that! And I thought, oh, what a commentary on both my life and on America. We rip it open, and we say, I needed that. I didn't just want it. I needed it to be happy. I needed it to be content. I needed it to be full. And what happens? I toss it aside into a pile, and I reach for the next thing. And that thing I needed doesn't bring me any more joy than the last thing. What if one of the greatest blessings God could give you and I was to enjoy what we already have? To not need anything more. To enjoy what he's already given. To see it as an unbelievable gift. What if contentment comes from living like Jesus did, a man who had few earthly possessions, who just wasn't obsessed with whether or not he had power or prestige, or whether he had security and safety? What if the best human life possible was not one where you had more money or more stuff, but the one where you practiced radical, ridiculous generosity in every area of your life, and you found it made you content right where you were, right with what you had. So what do we do with this? Well, I think we should give more. Um, think about what you're comfortable giving right now and give a little bit more. You say, Alex, you just want more money for the church. I knew it was coming. I know how you pastors think. You're greedy and selfish. And you just want raisins. I'm grateful for everything that people give to the church. If you really feel like that's my heart, it's not. Give it to another nonprofit. Give it to another church. I don't care because I want you to escape the greed and the discontentment that comes from wanting more, and I think that comes from being generous, and if you really think that that's what I'm about, then give it somewhere else. I don't care. When you get a raise, don't think about how you can increase your standard of living. Think about how you can increase your standard of giving. That's not how I think most of the time, but I think that's how Jesus <laughs> so be more generous. Think about what you tip and start raising it. Can, can you imagine this? Sometimes maybe you have a little bit extra money. You go out to a nice dinner and you say, we're going to tip 100% tonight. You say, Alex, that's crazy. Why would I do that? Because that's something Jesus would do. He gave 100% on the cross for us. He died that we might be raised from the dead. Think about when you let someone borrow something. Don't worry about getting it back. I'm bad about this. I like my stuff. I let people borrow something, and then I'm like, they've had it for a while. They probably forgot that it's fine. I'm just going to remind them that I need it back. That's not how Jesus thought about things. Surprise people with ridiculous generosity. 
you know what I find? If you practice ridiculous generosity, people say, there's something weird about you. Tell me about it. Like, why do you do this? And be like, well, I have a master named Jesus, and he practiced ridiculous generosity when he went to the cross for me, and that's why I practice ridiculous generosity to the people around me. And people will be like, they'll be a lot more interested in that than if you say, so, um, where do you think you'll go when you die? Let me tell you some things about Jesus. And they're like, ugh. You know? Tip 200%, and then let the waiter ask you about why you do that. Simplify your schedule and your possessions. Say no to most things so you can say yes to the best things. Give things away. Reduce the number of options you have, and you'll find your anxiety go down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this hard teaching. Thank you for loving us enough to not shy away from the things that you knew would make us feel uncomfortable, the things that we wouldn't like to hear, the things that honestly will keep a lot of people from following you. Because we don't like to hear that we're rich. We don't like to hear that we've been blinded by our greed. We like to hear that we're good and we're generous people. But Lord, we're all beginners when it comes to living radically generous lives that we can. So Lord, I pray that people don't walk away from this feeling guilty, but they walk away feeling inspired by the generosity that you showed us to be a little bit more generous. And then to think about, man, I think I could be even more generous in these areas of my life. I think that I could show people even more radical generosity. What I found is the money I give away, I never miss it. But so many times when I spend money on something, I think, boy, that was a waste. Lord, help us to live like you live. Help us to love.